Hi, that girl here today with Dr. Katie Tolbert, and she's a clinical associate professor at Texas A&M University, and really excited to talk to her about a really important topic that we use all the time in veterinary medicine, gastroprotectants. Dr. Tolbert, thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. I'm excited. So we use H2 blockers, proton pump inhibitors, sucrophate, all these drugs all the time in veterinary medicine. And I always joke, if an animal has fur, it gets famotidine. When in actuality, (laughs) you just published some really important data and we're part of a consensus statement on this. So I wanted to take the time in today's podcast to talk about the use of antacids in veterinary medicine. So first of all, I was wondering if you can talk about how these drugs actually work. What's the mechanism of action of how sucrophate versus H2 blockers versus PPIs, how do they actually work? Yeah, so that's a really good question. So they all work a little bit differently. So sucrophate is basically a coating agent. Um, And the idea behind sucrophate is that it's supposed to sort of bind to sort of a ulcerative or erosive area, predominantly in the stomach or the proximal duodenum, so the first part of the intestine, and help with ulceration or erosion there. Whereas acid suppressants, so that is the histamine 2 receptor antagonists like famotidine or pepsid or proton pump inhibitors like ezomeprazole or omeprazole, Prilosec is a, is a common brand name that we think about. Those are actually going to help to actually reduce the acid production of the stomach. So they're going to increase the gastric pH. And those also help with promoting healing of the stomach and the proximal duodenum anytime you have ulcers or erosions that are due to acid-related injury. Wonderful. Thank you. Now, we use these all the times in veterinary medicine, and I know that you had published two studies on this, um, not only on evaluation of the effect of orally administered acid suppressants on gastric pH in cats, but you were also part of the consensus statement on ACBIM. Going back to the older study that was published in the Journal of Veterinary Internal Medicine back in 2015, why did you guys hypothesize, or why did you guys want to do this study? What did you hypothesize that you were going to find when it looked at famotidine versus omeprazole versus a placebo? Yeah, that's a great question and actually leads into another study that we're doing for Wind Feline Foundation right now, which is where we're actually comparing some newer proton pump inhibitors that are available on the market. Um, And the problem that we have sometimes is that we don't have a lot of studies, unfortunately, in dogs and cats. And so oftentimes what we do is base medicine, veterinary medicine, off of what happens in humans. And we know that, especially in cats, for example, they're very different from humans. For example, they have a shorter duodenum, they have a higher duodenal pH. And so there's all uh, sorts of different reasons. Their microbiota is different than a human. So there's all sorts of different reasons why a cat may not react to the same way that a human does in terms of especially oral drugs that they take. And so that first study was really just a study to determine are proton pump inhibitors more effective than H2 blockers, so histamine 2 receptor antagonists, in raising gastric pH as they've been shown to be in humans. And um, kind of a not no-brainer, this is basically like low-hanging fruit, we call it in the science world, is that we prove that they are, that omeprazole or Prilosec is superior to famotidine or pepsid. And the other thing that we did with that study is commonly what happens is because, again, a lot of these 
these drugs are designed for humans, they're marketed in a way that is higher in terms of the strength than a cat or dog often needs. So for example, a standard dose for a cat would be about five milligrams. And most of the time you find these drugs available in sort of 20 or 40 milligram tablets, again, because they're designed for humans. And so what happens is oftentimes practitioners or owners will cut open those tablets and give them to cats. And one of the reasons why we wanted to do this study again is because that tablet contains an enteric coating. And so the idea is that you coat it and so it doesn't get um, prematurely degraded in the stomach. It's supposed to go into the duodenum and they get, then get absorbed. And so if you split it or fractionate it essentially, you disrupt that enteric coating. And we weren't sure if, if the famotidine, once you did that, would still work. I'm sorry, not famotidine, omeprazole would still work. And so by way of this study, we showed that actually it does, in fact, still work even when you disrupt that enteric coating. Now, I know you published a study looking at chronic use of antacids. So classic scenario, a lot of people are treating a geriatric population of cats that may have chronic renal disease, and they're worried about a uremic gastritis. Based on the recent ACM consensus statement, should we be using antacids long-term in some of our feline patients? Yeah, that's a great question. It's kind of a loaded one. And so if you have a couple of days, I'll sit here and talk to you about it. But um, I'll try to keep my answer relatively succinct. The first answer to that question is really alluding to safety. And the bottom line is we really don't know how safe these drugs are long-term in cats and dogs. We've we've done one study looking at cats where we gave it for 60 days. We gave a meprazole for 60 days. And honestly, in healthy cats, it doesn't seem to cause much of a problem as long as after the 60 days, you sort of slowly taper them off the drug so they don't get sort of a withdraw, withdrawal-associated um, rebound of gastric acid secretion. So they seem to be pretty safe. And what we don't know is if you use them for longer than two months or if you use them in cats or dogs that have diseases such as kidney disease or GI disease, if they could cause more significant problems. And one reason why we're worried about that is that in people, there is some at least association, not necessarily causation, but certainly an association where if you uh, are receiving a proton pump inhibitor specifically, um, you may be at a higher risk for developing acute kidney injury as well as chronic kidney disease. Now, that hasn't been really well proven in humans, but certainly it's a concern and definitely has not been shown to be the case yet. And cats and dogs, but we want to be really careful about the judicious use of those drugs. The other reason why I worry about these drugs in cats and dogs with kidney disease is because, you know, cats and dogs that have chronic kidney disease, especially when they're sort of later on when we start thinking about using these drugs, they're already receiving a number of pills. So they're usually getting an antiproteinuric pill. They're usually getting an antihypertensive. They may be getting a phosphorus binder. Maybe they're also getting an antibiotic. So we're talking about three or four pills, maybe even twice daily that you're trying to get into your sick cat or dog. And so that is not only stressful for the human that's trying to do that, obviously, but really stressful and reduces the quality of life of the pet who's having to take all of those medications. And finally, we don't really see that there is potentially a benefit to those drugs in dogs and cats that have kidney disease because it doesn't seem like they really get ulceration in their stomach or their duodenum as caused by kidney disease. So again, this is back to where we sort of look at humans. And unfortunately, we've been sort of using humans as a model for cats and dogs that have kidney disease. And that's really not appropriate. Humans are really different in terms of their kidney disease compared to dogs and cats. For example, Humans get helicopylori colonization in their stomach. Cats and dogs don't. And so humans have an increased risk of having GI ulceration secondary to that H. pylori. Again, cats and dogs don't. And so 
when we look at studies in cats and dogs that have had chronic kidney disease, it's really hard to find any of them that have actually had ulceration truly as a result of their kidney disease. So it's not really appropriate that we're using these drugs to treat GI signs in, in these guys that have kidney disease. And some practitioners will come up and, and tell me, well, I use it because it helps with vomiting or it helps um, increase their appetite. Um, and I'm not completely sure I believe that quite yet. We're doing a, a study that's funded by a private foundation where we're looking at dogs and cats that have chronic kidney disease and seeing if omeprazole actually helps improve their appetite or their vomiting or that sort of thing. But the answer that I usually have to, to those practitioners that are using those drugs for that reason is that we have better drugs to treat those signs. So for example, if, if appetite is a problem in a cat, I would prefer to give them mirtazapine because it's a appetite stimulant. So it's going to work much better than omeprazole or famotidine is. If they're having vomiting, I would prefer to give them meropitent or ondansetron, again, because it's a better antiemetic than omeprazole or famotidine will be. So we really just need to treat the problem and stop sort of just using these drugs inappropriately. I agree. It's really hard. A lot of the patients I see in the emergency clinic and uh, the specialty clinic I work at, they're automatically put on what I call the, the GI combination of meropitant, a proton pump inhibitor, and sucralfate. And you know, at $40 an injection for some of these cases per drug, um, we really have to weigh whether or not, while they may be benign in the acute setting, whether or not they're actually indicated. I also personally can't give sucralfate to a cat. <laughs> they just won't tolerate it. So was wondering, and you brought up such a great point. It's uh, one of my biggest frustrations when people use H2 blockers as antiemetics or not true antiemetics. But do you mind just talking a little bit about sucralfate? What are the indications or contraindications? Do we need to separate it from giving a PPI or an H2 blocker? And are there any potential side effects, especially when we're giving it with other drugs? Yeah, that's a great question. And again, unfortunately, we don't have a lot of studies to answer all of those questions. So I'm going to make sure that I have all of them because I think I, I missed a few of them. But side effects of sucralfate, certainly um, they can have interactions with other drugs such as antibiotics, for example. So we know that they can interact with doxycycline and some of the fluoroquinolones. And so usually we say that you need to separate out sucralfate from giving those particular antibiotics by two hours. Sucralfate needs to be given in a very certain way. So it needs to be given either with the liquid preparation that comes readily available or you have to give it as a slurry, so crushing it up and giving it with water. Um, giving it as a tablet has been pretty well proven or at least demonstrated in some studies to not do much. So when it, if you're giving a whole tablet of sucralfate, that's really not doing much for the animal. Sucralfate definitely works better in an acidic environment. So generally speaking, we say to at least separate it out from uh, something like a proton pump inhibitor, for, for example. Usually I say at least two hours, ideally. A proton pump inhibitor also works better when given in an acidic environment. And so, again, that's, that's why you'd want to separate out those two drugs as well. And then your last question, I believe the indications for sucralfate. Yeah, that's, that's one thing we're really struggling with at the moment. And again, it's sort of weighing risk versus benefits. And one of the risks, again, I always worry about, and I, I've alluded to it already, but that's pill burden. So one of the things that I worry about when I'm prescribing these drugs is compliance. Like I'm terrible about giving my own animals drugs and I know how important it is to be compliant. So just imagine somebody who doesn't have medical training trying to give their own sick animal a, a pill um, or trying to give them five pills. They're probably not going to give them all. And so the thing about sucralfate is when we compare that to something like omeprazole for the treatment of ulceration, we know that omeprazole is going to be far superior. 
So generally speaking, unless I have a really good indication for sacralfate, I generally don't give it because it's kind of a pain to give, first of all. And second of all, I don't know that it's all that helpful. So the one time that I actually give sucralfate really actually isn't ulceration because, again, I think the proton pump inhibitor, if it's an acid-related injury, let's say something like um, non-steroidal drug administration or something like that, if they have toxicity, I actually don't give them sucralfate. I'll give them some sort of proton pump inhibitor with, with or without mesoprostol. But I like sucralfate for times of mucositis or esophagitis. So I think it's very helpful for pain. I, I myself had gastroesophageal reflux disease, and I found that antacids, including sucralfate, were really, really helpful for sort of coating and, and helping with pain. So I think it's a great pain reliever. I don't think it's as good as we previously thought in terms of treating ulcerative disease. Great information. It must be a small animal advanced training thing because I also had a GI ulcer during my internship. And <laughs> I remember um, I actually hate slurring sucralfate because I remember when I took it, it tastes terrible. So I always say cowboy up and use the carafate, the 100 mg per mil. It tastes <laughs> way better, but also agree uh, with everything that you said. Now, in terms of takeaway points uh, based off your evidence-based medicine and off the consensus statement, do you mind just giving us a five-minute summary, which I know is very hard, of the ACBM consensus statement? What are our takeaways? When should we be using antacids? And what are the biggest things that general practitioners have to keep in mind when it comes say, antacid use? Yeah, I think that's a really good question. So I guess the biggest take-home that I have is really judicious use. I think that's really what the ACBAM consensus statement is trying to say. Like, we are really bad about giving these drugs inappropriately, as you've already said. Like, you know, you come in, I come in into the ICU, and I would say about 75% of the patients are receiving acid-suppressant drugs, and probably about 5% of them would actually need them. That's true also in human medicine. So there's it's a really inappropriate use of acid suppressants in human medicine as well. So the first thing is to think, okay, do I have evidence that there is an ulcer, for example, the patient has melanin or there's sort of a unexplained anemia or something like this that makes you think that the patient could have GI bleeding or it's just something that you suspect because the patient has gastric carcinoma or something else that makes you think, well, that this, this patient has a really high risk to have bleeding. So those are good reasons, I would say, for prophylactic or treatment therapeutic use of the acid suppressants. And if you don't have those things, then I wouldn't recommend giving these drugs. The other thing that we need to be really careful about is the placebo effect. So sometimes when we inappropriately prescribe these drugs, owners may think that there's actually a benefit because of the placebo effect where they're paying more attention to their animal. And so they think their animal is improving actually because they're paying more attention to their animal, not because of the drug that they're giving. And the problem with that, with acid suppressants particularly, is that these drugs are available over the counter. And so clients can really just go to the you know, CVS or Walgreens or whatever it may be, the local pharmacy, and pick up these drugs and continue to give them, not knowing that they potentially actually could have some pretty big side effects with long-term use. We, again, don't know that for sure. That's something that needs to be better investigated. But I will say just from one of the things that I've learned about these drugs are I'm really interested in studying in dogs and cats with critical illness, just because you mentioned um, the ICU unit would be, I get more worried about these drugs in, in the critically ill population. And the reason why I worry about them more is because they're already at risk for nosocomial pneumonia. And one of the things that gastric acid suppressants do is that they raise the gastric pH. 
And gastric pH is really important as a host defense mechanism. So it prevents colonization of ingested microorganisms in the stomach. And so if you raise the gastric pH and allow for some of those ingested microorganisms to set up shop, you potentially create an environment where if the animal does vomit and aspirate, it may have a really bad aspiration pneumonia as compared to what they might have had had they not received the gastric acid suppressant. So I think, you know, there's a lot of things that we don't know about gastric acid suppressants in terms of their potential for adverse effects. So we really need to be careful about using them appropriately and only when indicated. Amen, sister. (laughs) I I totally agree with you. Now, uh, so important. I wanted to reiterate one thing. One discharge mistake that I see, especially coming from a specialty clinic, and I should say I'm based out of Minnesota, we see protein-losing nephropathy, these dogs are going home on seven different medications, or IMHA dogs. I've seen owners come back to the ER crying, saying, I can't get this pill in. I'm like, who cares about the sucral fate? So please list medications in the order of importance that you want the owners to get them in. And I always tell owners, if you can't get the sucrophate, you can't get this GI med in, who cares? Your most important drug is one, two, three. So again, compliance is such an important part of veterinary medicine with appropriate communication. Dr. Tolbert, thank you so much for taking the time to discuss this really important topic. Again, I think we use all these drugs all the time. Antacids definitely play a role in veterinary medicine, but uh, please make sure we're using them judiciously. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. I really enjoyed it. 